You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on August 28, 2020. Let's have a listen. Okay. Hi, everyone. So back for another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. And I see there are still some questions left over from last week. There's one from uh, Rios asking, is the number zero a natural number or just an integer? Well, usually when people say natural numbers, they mean numbers one, two, three, five, and they don't include zero. Zero has a very weird history. You know, we think of zero as being a pretty natural and obvious concept today, but for a long time in the history of people doing calculations and math, zero was an extremely un, uh, unfamiliar idea. And, and people made all kinds of weird mistakes and so on as a result. Like I think the Romans didn't have a concept of zero. Their number system just firmly started at one. And so when they had to do calculations for calendars, for example, where it was important to just say things start at the beginning of the year, they had some whole elaborate way of dealing with that and they managed to get it wrong. And when first they set up the what's now called the Julian calendar, it's not the calendar we use today, it's the calendar that was used um, in up to the 1500s, some places 1600s, some places a little bit later than that. But it was a, a calendar which added, uh, I guess it added the month of August, if I remember correctly, named after Augustus Caesar, I think. Um, and uh, you know they added months to try and keep the uh, time it takes the earth to go around the sun aligned with the actual length of a year and days that they had worked out. And that's why we have leap years and things like that is to try and deal with the fact that the actual time it takes the earth to go around the sun is not 365 days. It's 365.252481, I think, days. Um, so in other words, it's, it's some, but in any case, the Romans didn't have all that stuff straight and they didn't have a notion of zero and that caused their whole calculation of calendars to get extremely confused. And I would say the notion of zero, and I think there's early um, evidence from, I think there's an early thing from Cambodia, some early things from India um, about uh, people noticing the idea of zero. But I think the idea of zero uh, as something that was a serious number that you could think about was something really of the probably 1400s-ish timeframe. That, that that became uh, started to be really understood. I mean, uh, nowadays it's kind of obvious. You're just counting numbers down, and and you get uh, you know you get b below two, one. Boop, what's next? Well, there's just zero. Then there's minus one, etc., etc., etc. That wasn't obvious to people for a long time. You could do that. People would say there is no notion of zero because it's nothing. So it was very very confusing. In fact, back in um, when was it around? 1500, I think a guy called Cardano um, was much responsible for, uh, strangely, at pretty much the same time, really taking negative numbers seriously and taking complex numbers, numbers that involve the square root of minus one, seriously. Um, and for us, complex numbers are sort of a slightly more elaborate concept one doesn't learn about until one's doing, I don't know where one learns about it, maybe doing pre calculus or something. 
um, whereas negative numbers are things everybody knows about. Um, uh, Cardano got involved with both of those because he was trying to solve cubic equations, equations with x cubes in them, um, and it, that required both of those ideas. So let's see, a question here from Freeman. How do you do calculus on round objects like spheres or donuts? Hmm, I'm not sure quite what do calculus means, but, but um, uh, so calculus, what is the idea of calculus? The, the basic idea of calculus is if you've got, let's say, something that is changing its value with time. So you can plot that as a graph. You could say, this thing is, it's going up, it's coming down, it's going up, it's coming down. I don't know, something like, um, well, in our current time, you know, number of infections measured by such and such a thing as a function of time, it has some curve. Okay, so we got this curve going as a function of time. Now, there are a couple of things that are interesting to do with that curve, and they're things which calculus talks a lot about. One is to find the slope of the curve at every point, and the other is to find the area under the curve. So let's talk about the slope of the curve. So let's say we have just a straight line going up. Then the slope of that curve is constant. So uh, that, that's, um, that, that we just say the slope of the curve is whatever it is. It's like when you're going down a hill or something in a car and it says, you know, 15% gradient or something. That's the, that's the slope of the hill. For every, for every uh, one unit you go along, you go 15% down or up. So that slope is just that ratio of the amount you go up to the amount you go across. Um, so if, the, if it's just a, a, a flat uh, line, that flat, uh, just a straight line, then, then the slope is constant. Okay, so the next case is what happens if instead it's going up like a quadratic, like x squared, it's going up like this, um, then what's the slope as a function of position? It turns out the slope, the, the slope gradually increases as you go further and the amount it increases turns out to be proportional to how far along you've gone. So, so that's the sort of, uh, that's another typical result. Okay, so what's the calculus version of this? The slope is called the derivative of the, of the, uh, of the, well, okay. So if we think about this thing, let's say as a function of time, we have some, some value as a function of time. Let's call it f of t, where t is time. So f is some function that tells us just how, uh, how high it's going to be um, at a particular time. So then the derivative of f of t with respect to t is the slope of that curve that's defined by f of t. Um, so derivative is, is just the slope of f of t and there are rules about derivatives. So for example, if f of t is a constant times, times t, let's say a times t, then the derivative is just a. So that just means it's, a, it's going in a straight line and the straight line has slope a, then the derivative is just a. If, if, the, um, if, the, if f of t is t squared, a parabola, then the rule for taking derivatives says that the derivative of f of t is 2t. And in general, if the, if the curve was t to the power n, the derivative would be n times uh, t to the power n minus one. Okay, so that's, that's first big bucket of calculus has to do with, with uh, uh, finding slopes of curves. Okay, the other, and that's about uh, differential calculus derivatives. The other big bucket of calculus has to do with integrals and integrals are working out the area under the curve. So 
for example, let's say we have a, a, just something that's completely flat. And we say, what's the area under this curve? Well, the, the area under the curve is going to be, if we start from the beginning, the area is going to be, well, that first rectangle plus the second plus the third plus whatever, the, the total area is going to increase linearly as we go, as we go across. So in other words, if we're finding the integral of f, if f of t is just a constant, then the integral of f of t is just t times that constant value. It's just the, it's just the area of that sort of big rectangle made by whatever the value of f of t is um, going for whatever distance you, you choose to go for. Well, then it turns out the, um, uh, if you have something which has a, 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 a straight line, then the integral, the area under that straight line is a parabola. And in general, the thing you realize is that uh, taking slopes and finding areas are inverses of each other. So in other words, if you find the uh, area under this, uh, under this curve, and then you find the slope of the area under the curve, that's equal to the original curve. That, that, sorry, that's equal to the original function. So the, the slope of the integral of f of t, the derivative of the integral of f of t is just f of t itself. And the same is true the other way around. If you work out the, um, uh, the, the, the slope and then you start aggregating it to find out the area under, under the function you get from the slope, you'll get back to the original function again. So derivatives and integrals are, are inverse functions. And, and the main sort of work of calculus as people learn it in school is knowing if you have a formula, like a formula like, I don't know, x log x or something, um, to figure out what's the derivative of that as a function of x and what's the integral of that as a function of x. And so you learn things like the integral of log x is x log x, I think at least, minus x actually. Um, and uh, it's, it's much easier to do derivatives than it is to do integrals. There's a completely systematic procedure for working out the derivative of anything. Basically when you have, if you can write something as a function f of g of h of x, then when you take the derivative of that, those functions kind of unpeel themselves and it's easy to write down the answer. So derivatives are, are pretty systematic and easy to take. Integrals are a much more complicated story. I mentioned that integrals and derivatives are inverses of each other. So in a sense, when you're doing an integral, what you want to do is find a result such that if you took the derivative of that result, you get back to the original function again. And just knowing sort of how to, how to shoot the right target to get the integral that um, to get that function, which when differentiated will give you the original thing again, that's tricky business. And the, uh, when people learn calculus, that's one of the sort of difficult things to do. And um, uh, it's, it's something which, um, okay, so in, in Mathematica, Wolfram Alpha and Wolfram Language, uh, we've kind of become the, the world's go-to place to get those kinds of things done. Um, and uh, the way, the way uh, we do it is using a bunch of sort of sophisticated mathematical ideas, which allow a very wide class of integrals to be computed, but not, even if you were taking the integral of, I don't know, um, I don't know, x over sine x plus one or something, it's a slightly tricky integral to do. Um, we would get the result for that integral in terms of some very elaborate mathematical function that people uh, don't, don't hear about in, in school typically. And then actually the main work is to simplify that very complicated mathematical function to something that people can recognize and understand. But um, 
the, 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 the job of kind of working out uh, analytically, working out as formulas, integrals, that's a tricky thing to do. And um, in, in general, there are all kinds of functions where, uh, well, you know, if you say, what's the integral of, of uh, okay, so I have, a, I have kind of a mission to make here, which is that I started using computers to do math um, back when I was a, a mid-teenager, because I didn't kind of like doing all this math stuff by hand myself. And so I've, uh, uh, I've been a, a person who's done many integrals in their life, essentially all on a computer. So if you ask me as a human to do integrals, I'm really crummy at it. Um, I, it's, uh, uh, when my older daughter was learning calculus, I think I annoyed her. Uh, she's now uh, in the process of becoming a professional mathematician, but that's, a, that's an independent footnote. Um, but uh, the, um, uh, I think I annoyed her by saying, you know, watching her do integrals by hand. I was like, I didn't think humans still did any of that kind of stuff. Um, because I certainly haven't done it as a human for more than 40 years now. Um, but in any case, uh, so I'm a bad person to ask, you know, what's an integral of what? But I think um, I have to really think about it, you know, what the integral of, um, of these different functions is. Um, but uh, uh, some integrals you can like just do systematically. Other integrals that seem like they're pretty simple functions are really hard to do, like the integral of sine of sine of x. I know that integral can't be done in terms of ordinary functions that you would find in standard textbooks and so on. Uh, it can be done in terms of a very ornate bivariate hypergeometric function. But like sine of sine of sine of x, sort of three nested trigonometric functions, I think that integral cannot be done in terms of any ordinary uh, mathematical functions that, that people have thought about. When I say it can't be done, I just mean there isn't a formula for, for what that integral is. If you just wanted to work out what's the value of that integral, um, taking that curve a certain distance, well, there'll be some number and you can work that out. Okay, so the original question was about doing calculus uh, on, um, on spheres and, and donuts and things like that. Um, what I've been describing is sort of ordinary so-called uh, univariate calculus, single variable calculus where it's just some function as a function of time or some function as a function of X and so on. But you can also do multivariate calculus where you say, let's look not at a curve, but a whole surface. So let's say we look at the height as a function of position in the XY plane, and we've got some whole landscape and we've got a big mountain there and so on and so on and so on. And so then you can ask questions like, what's the generalization of the idea of slope for this whole like mountainscape and that's a thing, uh, instead of it being just a number, what the slope is, it's a, it's a direction and a number, it's a gradient vector. So for example, that would be, you're at the top of Mount Everest, which way down is the one that is the fastest down? So it might be that some, some way it's a very shallow curve down the mountain, another way it's very steep. So what one, is, what one does in multivariate calculus is often to find the gradient of this uh, height function and that gradient is a vector which points down the sort of steepest going down direction um, of the mountain, so to speak. And that's sort of the beginning of multivariate calculus. You can also consider uh, integrals where you're working out not what is the area under the curve, but like what's the volume of the mountain, so to speak, or what's the, um, uh, the volume of some figure, you know, some cone or something like this. Okay, so uh, an even more elaborate thing 
is when you are looking at functions, not just as a function of one variable, just a curve as a function of position, not just as a, you know, height as a function of, of position in the plane, but instead you're saying, I'm on the surface of a sphere, and now I'm going to have some function on the first surface of a sphere. So, so that would be like considering, you know, the mountains on the earth, considering that the earth is a sphere, or like you have a very small asteroid, and you're asking uh, for, you know, the height as a function of, of position around the asteroid. It gets a lot trickier because on the Earth, for example, the Earth is mostly a sphere, and we can just start talking about the, the height locally on the sphere. But if the whole thing is a really weird shape, it's a more complicated issue to, to define what you mean by height and so on. So there's a lot of results about calculus um, that uh, apply to working out integrals and things like that over more complicated shapes. There's a bunch of very wonderful, um, beautiful mathematical results having to do with working out uh, integrals of functions where the function is defined over the surface of, let's say, a sphere or a donut. And um, it turns out that certain kinds of results uh, for certain integrals, the answer that you get depends only on the number of holes in the object. So a sphere is something which has genus zero. It has no holes in it. A donut, standard donut with a hole in the middle. I, I, it always confused me when I was a kid in England and I would sometimes read uh, uh, textbooks and they were American textbooks and they would talk about donuts and, and they meant toruses. Um, they meant things with, you know, with, with holes in the middle, with sort of circle around the outside and a hole in the middle. That always really confused me because in England, at least at that time, a donut was a thing usually filled with jam that was just a blob of, of stuff. It didn't have any hole in the middle of it. So I, I couldn't understand what these uh, sort of topological structures with holes in them were. But anyway, an American standard donut uh, with, with one hole, um, that's a genus one object. And it turns out that one of the surprising things is that some of these results about calculus depend uh, only on the number of holes. So if you had a two hole donut, you would, get, um, you would get certain results and, and so on. It only depends on the number of holes. And there's a bunch of really nice mathematical results related to that, which um, I, I think, uh, let me not get into describing those in detail here. All right, let's see. Another question here from All Ether. Um, if you could change how we measure time, would you and to what? Gosh, I'm not sure at what level we're talking about here. Um, you know, it's a time goes by, we make certain um, uh, uh, somewhat um, uh, arbitrary decisions about what the, um, um, uh, you know, how, how long is a second? How long is a minute? How long is an hour? How long is a day? How long is a week? Some of them are not so arbitrary. A day, we pretty much want to be more or less the time it takes the earth to go around the sun. Cause that's a, that's a sort of a natural thing where we can say, well, you know, each day, each time we get up in the morning, each day, we want something to happen. A year is also not so arbitrary because it's the roughly the time it takes the earth to go around the sun. A month. Well, there's a lunar month, the time it takes the moon to go around the earth. That's about 28 days. Um, We've chosen to make our standard in the, in the standard calendar. We've chosen to make our months be 12 months, and they have this rather awkward stuff with some have 30 days, 31 days, etc. Um, and uh, uh, these are so, so some 
you know, the, the, the anchor points are more or less, you know, the, um, uh, uh, you know, a day is a day because that's the time it takes Earth to go around. Uh, a year is, is, is a year roughly because it's some approximation to the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun, a, a month roughly the time it takes the time, the, the phase of the moon to, to rotate or the moon to go around the Earth. Um, a second, I suppose, is, is roughly, you know, one heartbeat. I don't know whether that's, um, uh, um, you know, I don't know really whether that's where it came from, but that is, that is something that, that's there. You know, the idea of measuring uh, time with, um, you know, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, uh, certainly 60 minutes an hour came from the Babylonians who were very into base 60. Base 60 is really convenient because you can divide 60 into, you know, if you, if you want to say I've got a, I've got a measuring everything in 60ths and how much, you know, what I can have a half of a 60th and that's still a whole number. I can have a quarter of a 60th and um, uh, yeah, that's still a whole number. And um, I can have, uh, that's, you know, a quarter of a 60th is 15, 15, you know, like 15 minutes, uh, a quarter of an hour type thing. Um, so there, there are, it's convenient to have 60 as the number of minutes an hour, if you want to divide an hour, like you're saying, quarter of an hour, it's still a, a whole number of minutes and so on. Um, I think people occasionally, uh, I don't know, things like seven days in a week. Well, that's something certainly existed. Um, I think that existed in Babylonian times. Um, I don't know, is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? It's like, if you want to really, you know, uh, sort of, um, uh, I don't know what, it, what would it, how it would change society if we had nine day weeks or five day weeks. I'm not sure. Um, I mean, we might feel more relaxed. We might feel less relaxed. I don't really know. Um, you know, there are people who have these proposals occasionally to, um, uh, to make um, 25 hours in a day. I'm, I'm not sure why we would do that. I think um, uh, these questions about making it more convenient to calculate things, um, it's always, uh, uh, it's always worth remembering that, you know, now that we have computers, we can kind of calculate a way around anything. Um, and it's not so, sometimes it's convenient to be able to do sort of estimation of things. I tell a, a, a story about, um, maybe I told it on one of these before, but, but um, tell a, uh, when I was growing up in England, um, the, uh, the currency in England, money was not decimal. So it, um, it was, there were, uh, pounds, shillings, and pence, and there were uh, 12 uh, uh, pennies in a shilling and 20 shillings in a pound. And just for good measure, a guinea was 21 shillings. Um, but uh, in any case, so it was, a, it was something where, you know, uh, 12 pennies in a shilling, uh, 20 shillings in a pound. So it wasn't a decimal currency. It's not like in, in the US where there are just 100 cents in each dollar and so on. And I remember telling some teacher when I was like, probably six years old, I would guess, that I was, I was very pleased with the fact that I'd figured out that money didn't have to work this way, that you could perfectly well have, uh, you know, defined prices for things in decimals. And this teacher was like, but it's been the way it is for, for you know, a thousand years. It's never going to change. And I was like, well, it's really silly. Well, then about a year or two later, it was announced that in fact, uh, Britain was going to change to having decimal money. And that was going to happen in 1970. Um, and so it was like, oh, okay, cool. But what was interesting to see was 
how confused or not people got with decimal money relative to having had a thousand years or whatever of pounds, shillings, pence. Um, the, uh, and I remember that on television, you know, for, for a year beforehand, they used to have these decimalization programs about, you know, how to estimate money with, with decimal money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, it was, uh, you know, I think nobody knew how confused people were going to be. As it turns out, it was really, it was interesting the day, I mean, I was 10 years old or something. It was the day when the money changed and like you, you would hand in money in, in the old, old currency and you get back money in new currency. And the most interesting thing to me was that people were not confused that extremely quickly people uh, you know, were able to compute things just fine with decimal currency. And it wasn't like, oh, I'm so confused. I don't know, you know I don't know how to do this. Now, I know what's happened in, in more recent times and I haven't lived there for a long time. I know they went from measuring temperature in Fahrenheit to measuring temperature in Celsius. And I don't know how confusing that's been. My guess is not very. All right, next question here. Wow, okay, so there's a question here from Brian um, about that there are clouds of things like alcohols in space. And um, the question is, uh, could there be sort of life that emerges from all of these um, lifelike molecules that exist in, in molecular clouds in space? Um, tough business. So most of what's out in, for example, interstellar space is mostly just hydrogen. That's it, just hydrogen. But there are some more complicated molecules. There are molecules that have carbon and hydrogen, some, some slightly longer hydrocarbon uh, type molecules, some I think with oxygen as well. There are molecules out there that are some of the molecules that we find in living systems, um, not our huge molecules like that, molecules that are you know, uh, decent length carbon and hydrogen molecules. Those molecules arise in space by a process very different. It's not by chemical processes. You know, in chemistry, when you do chemical reactions, molecules are being broken up, other molecules, other atoms, are, molecules are attaching themselves and so on. That, that's happening in the sort of, uh, let's say in a liquid chemical reaction, that's happening when just molecules and liquid run into each other and so on. In space, the process is, is uh, in interstellar space, there just aren't very many molecules around. And so uh, a common thing that happens is these molecules just sort of, uh, run into each other uh, just in sort of free space. Two molecules will run into each other and then maybe they'll, they'll get attached. There are also interstellar grains, uh, little tiny dust grains on which uh, different kinds of reactions can happen. But they tend to be very different kinds of, of processes for building up molecules than the ones that you see in standard chemistry on Earth. So you build up sort of the, the set of molecules you build up as a different and somewhat exotic set of molecules. Uh, can those molecules sort of, could you expect that those molecules would combine and make still more complicated molecules? Well, maybe, but not very fast. Um, it's not like a chemical reaction on Earth where you could have this, you know, uh, beaker of, of, of liquids where they're just, you know, uh, trillions and trillions of molecules colliding all the time. In space, it's like, well, be, be, you know, be glad if your molecules collide every thousand years or something. So it's, it's a much slower process. Now, you know, it's a very slippery slope to understand what uh, counts as something being alive. I, let me not get into that whole discussion. Um, I think that um, the thing to say is, is can one expect that on a short time scale, 
things, you know, and uh, just individual molecules hanging around in space will combine to make sort of the kind of collections of molecules that we're used to with life on Earth. That's a that's a really long road. Um, I mean, in in the in the early Earth, a few billion years ago, things were really set up so that lots and lots of molecules were colliding all the time, and it was much easier to build up more complicated chemical processes and so on to make things that were the complicated molecules that have made life on Earth. I don't think that's the kind of thing we can expect to have happen in interstellar space. Uh, question from Parmenides, uh, a curious name given the question. Speaking of the Romans, do you think Latin is a better language than English for science and mathematics? Oh boy. Well, Latin is a very organized language. You know, English is a language which is an amalgam of many different pieces from many different sources. And there are so many exceptions in English. In, in Latin, there are many fewer exceptions. I mean, you know, when I was a kid learning Latin, a lot of what you learned was the exceptions, you know, the verbs that decline in a weird way. Um, you know, uh, in English, it would be, you know, I am, you are, he is, um, she is, whatever, uh, we are, uh, you are, they are. Okay, that wasn't so irregular. But, um, you know, in, in uh, sum as est, sumus estus sunt, right? That's the Latin for that. And, and that's the, that's, um, uh, you know, those are all sort of words that sound a bit different, but they all come together to be parts of, 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 uh, of, um, uh, of, of um, inflecting um, the word for, for to be, present tense of, of the verb for, for to be. Um, so English has just a ton more um, uh, sort of unusual uh, verb forms, unusual uh, grammatical constructions and so on. I mean, as a good example of this, you know, a Latin grammar book is a little thin thing. You can kind of learn it in a little while. You know, because I've been interested in natural language understanding for computers, I have, you know, English grammar books that are fairly complete English grammar books, and they're big, thick, thousand page, you know, 1500 page documents, because English is so full of weird exceptions and so on. So Latin is a, is a much more systematic language in many ways. It's also a language that, uh, but it's a, it's a language that obviously didn't get to express a lot of things that are relevant for science and technology today. Um, it's... Uh, um, you know, I actually have a, a friend who's a classics professor at Oxford University, and um, uh, he has the, the curious job of doing the following thing. So at Oxford University, they give honorary degrees sometimes to, uh, to distinguish people from different fields. Um, and uh, some of those people have, you know, are people who do computer stuff or biochemistry or something like this. And at Oxford University, probably since the 1200s, they've had a tradition of explaining the achievements of their honorary degree recipients by a speech given in Latin. Well, the question is, um, if you're giving a speech in Latin, you have to describe the accomplishments of somebody who's worked on parallel computing or worked on um, uh, the physics of uh, uh, anti antimatter or something like this. The question is, how do you describe that in Latin, given that the, the language of Latin is, uh, is a language which has, has, uh, has not been being added to in recent years. So my friend has the, has the curious job of trying to make up the ways of explaining in a few words um, what, um, uh, uh, what something, a thing like a computer. I, I know he's got a, a word for a computer in Latin. I don't, I don't remember what it is. 
um, but uh, uh, that he uses for these uh, for these for these speeches and so on. But obviously, you have to adapt Latin for modern times if you're going to do that. Now, you know, in the history of these things, there was a time uh, when Latin was really the the language of of uh, of scholarship, the language of intellectual work. I mean, I think that was probably the case from, from the time of the Roman Empire, um, right up through, I would say, um, and into the, probably into the 1700s. Um, and uh, that was something partly driven by uh, the Catholic Church and the, the dominance of, of that. Um, but it, it extended to, to other places as well, um, that you know, if you wanted to explain something and you wanted it to have uh, serious readership, and it was an intellectual thing, you would write it in Latin. Um, and, and that was probably a good thing because you didn't have to write in English and French and German and you know, in, in, um, in Spanish, whatever, all these languages as they emerged were all separate languages. But if you wanted to write your, your great scientific work, you just write in Latin, everybody would, would know how to read it. Um, and, and that kind of survived up until, as I say, about the 1700s, when things started getting written in, in different languages, I, I mean, predominantly at that time, English, German, French, those were the most common languages. Um, and really that, that continued until probably after the Second World War, um, when, uh, when really English became the dominant language for scientific discourse. Um, uh, there's still a certain amount in French. Um, you know, France has been a country that's been very proudly trying to maintain its language um, uh, you know, against the, the forces of, of, of corruption from words being imported from other places. Um, and uh, I think um, uh, it, it's, uh, it's one, one of these languages where there's actually an institute that is trying to standardize the language and says, you know, I don't know whether you can say le blockchain um, in French, but, you know, there, there'll be words which are like, no, you know, you can't say that in, in French. It's not, a, it's not the right word. Um, it's, uh, um, but in any case, the, the, when Latin was kind of on its way out, 1600s, early 1700s, as a, as a universal language that actually drove a bunch of development. Um, it actually was part of the impetus for mathematical notation because that was sort of an idea, well, let's at least, even if we lose the language part of it, at least let's have the math be something that's internationalized. And people like Gottfried Leibniz were much involved in, in that effort. Um, it's also, led to the idea at that time of making what were called at that time philosophical languages, languages which could express meaning, but without having specific words from particular languages. And sometimes those languages would get written in strange, uh, strange sort of runic scripts um, that were supposed to be something which is sort of a language independent language, so to speak, that would express purely the meaning without the, the sort of the surface level of actual expression in terms of historically defined words in particular languages. Um, that effort of making philosophical languages didn't really make it in the 1600s, and it kind of got put on the back burner for the last 300 years. Um, now, actually, I've been super interested in, in doing that. And in fact, our Wolfram language is kind of a, a run up to being able to do that. It's a sort of computational language for describing the world. Um, and uh, what I'm, um, uh, I'm very interested in the idea of having a language that is a systematic language that can be understood by a computer that could express the kinds of things that I'm expressing to you now. Um, we've obviously done a lot of work on this. 
in things like Wolf and Alpha, where we're translating English into this sort of precise symbolic internal language that allows us to do computation. But I think now the idea of philosophical language, which was born out of this move from Latin in the 1600s and early 1700s, um, I think that idea, which has, has kind of um, not really been developed in the last 300 years, uh, it's going to be one of my next projects to try and really develop that. It's something that's important for practical things in the world. It's important for if we write a legal contract that says, you know, person A must do whatever this thing and that thing and the other thing, you have to write that in a way that's very well defined so that you don't have to argue about, well, did person A do what they said in the contract they should do and so on. And um, uh, traditionally that's been written in basically, let's say English or whatever native language of what one's using and sort of legalese, which is an attempt to, you know, say things like, um, what's a good example, uh, you know, uh, the following, you know, conditions, are, uh, um, uh, including but not limited to the following conditions, you know, that phrase, including but not limited to, is basically saying, there's a list of things, but there might be something else. And just because the thing that was a, the something else that was mentioned was what actually turned out to be important, you shouldn't ignore that, etc, etc, etc. But that phrase is a piece of sort of legalese, um, that is an attempt to make more precise what would otherwise be expressed in English. If you have a, a sort of true symbolic discourse language, as I'm calling it, it's kind of a derivative of these philosophical languages. If you have a true thing like that, then you don't, you get to precisely define what you want to say. I mean, I might say there've been various attempts to make alternative natural languages uh, for talking about things. I would say the the, there was a big push on those things in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Most famous of those is Esperanto, um, which was a language which was intended to basically simplify a bunch of the standard European languages. And it, it lasted for a while, but it's, it's not ever received a really huge following, partly I think in modern times, because English has been so successful as a language that uh, a large, large number of people know. Um, Okay, there's a clarification from Freeman here about the question about calculus on spheres and donuts and things. Uh, the question about this is a question about sort of how you do calculus when you've got hills that are on the surface of the Earth, or worse, on the surface of a little asteroid. You know what? Let, let me let me punt on this question. It's a slightly complicated question because it'll it'll lead us. Well, blah, 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 blah. all right, I'll talk about it a little bit. Okay, so. Is the question of how do we define? So here's a question. What's the tallest mountain in the world? Well, everybody knows it's Mount Everest. What does that mean, the tallest mountain in the world? Well, it means the tallest mountain relative to wherever the flat, wherever the base is supposed to be. What is the base? Is the base sea level? What is sea level? So, for example, across the Panama Canal between the Atlantic and the Pacific, you would think, well, there's sea level. So the Atlantic and the Pacific must be at a definite level, but they're not. There are a bunch of locks in the Panama Canal. I forget which one is, is higher. I probably should be able to work it out. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific, which both presumably are at sea level because they're both seas, so to speak, are not in fact at the same level. They're not at the same, at the same distance away from the center of the earth. So, so the question of what's the tallest mountain is, is potentially quite tricky to define. You know, one definition might be what's the mountain that's that's furthest away from the center of the earth. Another might be what's the mountain, and by the way, that would lead you to very weird results, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, 
the, uh, okay, so that might be one definition of tallest mountain is the thing that's farthest away from the center of the earth. Another would be, what's the thing that's tallest relative to whatever you consider the surface of the earth to be at that place on the earth? Okay, why is that a tricky question? Okay, so first approximation, the earth is a sphere, but it's not exactly a sphere. The earth is rotating obviously once a day and that, that rotation, even though the Earth is, is you know, is, it has, it's, it's molten inside, but it's, you know, it's rock, it's a pretty, pretty solid kind of thing. The, the centrifugal force associated with the rotation of the Earth, the fact that, you know, like when you, when you whirl something around, it tries to pull away from, from your hand if you're whirling something around on a, on a string or something, that, that force uh, applied to the Earth causes the Earth to bulge out in the middle, so to speak. So the equator is bulging out. So the, the earth is flattened. The poles are slightly, if you look at the distance between the North and South pole, it's less than the distance across the earth at the equator. So the earth is bulging out at the equator. So if we say, what's the, what's the highest distance out relative to the center of the earth? Well, it'll be something on the equator because the earth is bulging out at the equator. But so then what, uh, how do you decide what is, the, what is the surface of the earth? You know, what counts as the surface of the earth? Well, it's a bit arbitrary, but the Earth is a good, to a good approximation. It's not exactly a sphere, but it is pretty close to being an ellipsoid, a, the three-dimensional generalization of an ellipse. And so what, what ends up happening is that one defines, there are so-called datums, which are defined, which are a particular choice of what ellipsoid one will be thinking the, that the Earth corresponds to. And okay, so the, the, um, this is getting a little tricky. So back in the late 1800s, there was a chap called George Everest, who was a, uh, 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 a person who was sort of surveying the earth. And when he came to the Himalayas, he um, uh, was looking around at mountains and things and, and trying to work out this question about sort of which mountain is highest relative to what you can consider the surface of the earth to be according to the ellipsoid. And he had a particular ellipsoid that he used to define the surface of the earth. And relative to that ellipsoid, he determined that this particular mountain was the tallest mountain. And uh, I think to, I gather his, his family's uh, frustration, the mountain, even though his name was pronounced Everest, the mountain became called Everest. Um, and uh, that was, but the determination that that was the tallest mountain was a tricky thing. Now, okay. So then what happens, this is the, the field of study that, that's involved in this whole question about datums and so on, is a field called geodesy. And um, uh, in geodesy, there are a variety of different datums that people use. And for example, it's very convenient to be able to say that uh, North America, for example, which is essentially one tectonic plate, can be thought of as, as having one uh, one datum, one little, one sort of effective ellipse, piece of an ellipsoid. Um, but that datum does not line up properly with the convenient datum to use for other parts of the world. When GPS became common, uh, what is it called? WGS84, I think, is the datum that's used for GPS. GPS, because it's global to the whole Earth, you have, um, uh, you have this particular datum that um, is used to, it's an ellipsoid that is a good approximation to the ellipsoid for the whole earth, even though the whole earth isn't precisely an ellipsoid. So it's more convenient if you're just dealing with North America to pick a different effective ellipsoid for just the piece of North America. So, so what does this mean in practice? I remember years ago, I was at a GPS and I was driving some car on a beach 
right, by an ocean, right? And I'm looking at my GPS and I'm looking at the little thing you could press in those days. I'm not sure you can still do that on GPSs, but you get raw GPS coordinates and so on. And it said that I was 50 feet up. And it's like, I mean, I, I knew how this worked. So I wasn't as confused as I might've been, but um, it's like, how could I be 50 feet up? I'm right on the beach, right at sea level. The ocean is right here. How can I be 50 feet up? And the answer is because sea level is not the zero of the WGS 84 datum that's used for GPS. Um, so it's, a, it's sort of a tricky thing. What is the, what is the zero, so to speak? And, and the different oceans are at different heights because the, um, uh, the, the, the water in the ocean is, um, uh, is, is, for example, pulled by the moon, different amounts and so on. It's a, it's a question of, and, and by the rotation of the earth, the water is it bulges out different amounts and so on. So it's a it's a tricky question um, what the actual sort of zero of, of height on the earth is. And so if you start asking questions like um, what's the, um, uh, you start asking sort of mathematical questions about working out, you know, the total amount of, uh, oh, I don't know, even when you talk about sea level rise, even that's a tricky thing to define what that really quite means relative to, uh, you know, relative to all these datums and relative to land and so on and so on and so on. I mean, things happen in, um, uh, in geodesy. There are almost, I, I don't know whether a war has ever been fought over geodesy, but um, it's certainly come uh, somewhat close because there are things where people have defined, okay, there are also um, coordinate systems where people say, uh, given this datum, I'm going to define coordinates to say where things are on the surface of the Earth. And for example, let's say there's an earthquake and the Earth actually moves. What do you do with the coordinate system? Or another case is you've got um, uh, different, um, uh, you've got uh, statements that my property consists of this thing where you go one mile in this direction, then you go east and you go half a mile in that direction and so on and so on and so on. Okay, so people have defined those kinds of things in particular countries, when there are treaties between countries or when people agree what the borders between countries are, they're usually written out in those terms, you know, go east this distance from the river, you know, go this amount, go this amount, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where does that actually land up? Well, it can depend on these questions of geodesy. And sometimes it's very tricky. And I know there've been some cases where people have gotten very, uh, very upset about, because it turns out that which way it goes depends on whether you get the oil or whether your neighboring country gets the oil or you get the gold or your neighboring country gets the gold. So, so these things can be quite tricky. Okay, I'm gonna take one that says, hello, I'm a kid and I have a question. How can one achieve, wow, this is something quite technical. Um, how can one achieve file fragmentation in a file system designed for archive files? For example, how can one append X number of sectors to a static list of tar POSIX headers and file data sections? Well, okay, we can unpack that a little bit. Um, let, me, let me explain a little bit about that. It's a technology question. Um, I'm not sure if I'm gonna nail this particular question, but maybe it will be of interest to people. Okay, so you've got lots of files on your computer. Maybe I've got, I might have hmm, 10 million files on my computer. Maybe you have 100,000 files on your computer. Each one has a file name. It might be a .txt file. It might be a .jpg image. It's all kinds of different files on your computer, okay? 
And those files on your computer are stored in your computer's file system. What, how do they actually get stored? And for example, uh, so the file system of your computer might be, it might be an actual spinning disk. These days it's more likely a solid state disk. It's something where there is an address for every piece of data in that file system. And it's a linearly arranged address. So it goes from address number one to address number, you know, let's say you have a hundred gigabytes of, of storage to address number, uh, you know, a hundred billion, okay? So, uh, the, so what's happening is every, every piece of data, every byte of every file has to be put somewhere on the, um, on the, in, in that file system of your computer. Okay, so there's a tricky issue that comes up and, uh, and there are different ways to solve it, but here's the tricky issue. Let's say you've got hundred gigabytes of storage available and, and let's, say, let's make it simpler. Let's say you've got one gigabyte available and you've got, you put in a hundred megabyte file. Okay, that takes a 10th of your one gigabyte of storage. Blump, it's uh, put at storage locations, let's say, one through 100 million, okay? Now you've got another file of a certain size and you, you put that down somewhere else. But now the problem is that you can get this phenomenon called fragmentation, which is you've, you've, you've got these gaps because each file, at least in the first way, way of doing this has to be contiguous. Like all the bytes, all the, all the pieces of data in that file have to live contiguously in your file system. So the locations in your file system are numbered and it has to be the case that every piece of that file is just at successive places in your file system. So then the screwy thing can happen that particularly when you create a file, you delete a file, you create a file, you delete a file, pretty soon you can end up with a situation where things are very fragmented, where you've, you've allocated, you've got, you've got a certain amount of, of, of space that's been allocated, but there are, you know, in principle, you've only allocated, let's say 600 megabytes out of your one gigabyte of storage. But in fact, but now you want to put in a 200 megabyte file. You say, well, that's no problem, it should fit. We've got 400 megabytes left. But no, the problem is you've not got 400 contiguous megabytes left. Your thing is broken up into all these different pieces and there's no hole in, there's no contiguous sequence of locations in your file system that will be big enough to fit that 200 megabytes. So that gets very tricky. And there are a variety of solutions to this problem of fragmentation. Um, you can, your operating system can move things around and, and remove that fragmentation and so on. There are a variety of schemes that are used and uh, um, I don't know the specifics of, um, I mean, I could, I don't completely understand this question, so I can't, can't really comment in more detail on it. I mean, I, I mentioned one other thing, perhaps of interest about files. So let's say you got a file and it's full of text. It's your, you know, your, your uh, school essay. Well, the question is, let's say your school essay is, um, uh, let's say 10,000 characters long, okay? Question is, do you need 10,000 bytes? Do you need 10,000 um, uh, locations to store that 10,000 character essay? Well, it turns out you probably don't because you can compress it a bit because like every time you type to Q, there's a very high probability the next letter is gonna be a U. 
Um, and you can use that kind of information and the fact that different letters have different frequencies and so on to make an encoding of your file that is less long than the file itself. And so there are formats like zip and um, uh, things like this that are archive formats that use compression to take uh, sort of the, the redundant things like the U after Qs and things like that. Effectively, it's not really quite how it works, but it effectively takes those things out to compress things like English text. And with English text, you can usually achieve about 50% compression. So any piece of English text, if you run it through this compression algorithm, you'll get a file that's half as long, but the original English text can be recovered from that file. With images, depending on how accurately you want to reproduce the image and depending on how much fuzziness you allow, you can sometimes have much huger compressions, factors of 50, factors of 1,000, uh, and eventually you just have to make a decision how, how accurate do you want the image to be? Are you prepared to have the image, um, do you want every single pixel to be right? Or do you, um, is, it, is it something where you're, um, uh, where you're just trying to get something that visually looks more or less right? Uh, that's a question I'd, I'd um, all right, I'm gonna take a couple more here. Uh, okay, first question is about protein folding. And do the things that we've studied um, uh, have anything to say about that? Okay, so first of all, what is protein folding? What are proteins? Proteins are the molecules that we're pretty much made of. Um, they are long molecules made up of sequences of, of blocks of atoms called amino acids. And um, your genome, your DNA, specifies how to make maybe 30 or 40,000 kinds of proteins. And they get made on demand to make you know, hair cells and to make blood cells and to make different kinds of things. Um, those are, that's what we're made of is proteins and inside each of our cells is the apparatus to construct each of these different possible proteins as specified from our genome. So one of the questions is you've made this protein, it's made from a large number of units, let's say a million units of, um, uh, um, uh, of sequences of amino acids. Some proteins are millions long, some people are, some of them are thousands long and so on. Different proteins are different lengths, um, but they're made from sequences of these blocks of these common, there are 20, uh, common building blocks, 20 kinds of amino acids that are used as the building blocks for, for proteins. Okay, so you've got this long chain of protein that's made, it's sort of extruded from the ribosomes inside your cells. Uh, when, when that protein needs to be made, it's, it's constructed and it's this long string. Okay, so you've got this long string of amino acids. The question then is, what does this long string do? And the answer is the long string folds itself up because there are attractions, different amino acids are attracted to each other, repel each other and so on, the string folds itself up. And that process of folding things up is both really important for living systems and really hard to compute. So uh, the reason it's important, so there are, there are proteins that don't really fold up much that are long stringy proteins like actin, the protein that's in our muscles um, is like that. It's a long stringy protein that um, is used to make the fibers in our muscles um, there would be a protein like, I don't know, hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is sort of a protein that makes kind of a cage and it has a little, little gap in the middle of the cage that fits just one iron atom in it. And that iron atom is used to, to uh, uh, collect oxygen that's, that's used to transport oxygen in our blood. Um, or a whole variety of different kinds of proteins 
There are so-called globular proteins that are made that look like big globs. Um, there are uh, proteins that have um, uh, things called alpha helices, which are long sort of spirals. There are things called beta sheets. There are different kinds of shapes that, that show up in different proteins. Like for example, a protein whose, whose job is to transport molecules through the membrane of a cell, it might have an alpha helix, which is like a tube that's stuck through the, the membrane of the cell and the, the ion like, like a, um, something like a, a, a potassium ion or something or a sodium ion might go through that tube through the alpha helix of the protein to get through um, the, uh, the membrane of the cell. So proteins come in different shapes and the shapes are very important for the function of the protein. But the question is, if you're just given, here's the sequence of amino acids in a protein, now tell me what shape this protein is, that's a very hard problem to solve. In nature, proteins do it pretty easily. They take seconds, maybe minutes, maybe, to fold themselves up and pretty much, given a protein, pretty much folds itself up in a definite way. At least it does that if it's in water. It might not do the same folding if it was not in, a, in water and some different solvent. And sometimes proteins misfold themselves. Sometimes they, they, they're supposed to fold this way, but actually they fold a different way. And it's possible that Alzheimer's disease has something to do with misfolding of proteins. And um, the, uh, so, so protein folding matters and protein folding in nature happens quite quickly, but it's been awfully difficult to figure out to get computers to do accurate folding of proteins. And there've been two basic approaches. One is to just work out all the forces between the different atoms and the protein and try and compute, just solve this big uh, system. It, 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 it might require quantum mechanics, but you can pretty much ignore the quantum mechanics and just try and figure out what thing minimizes the energy by, by arranging these proteins, by arranging the amino acids and, in, a, in a different way. That's one, the so-called ab initio from first principles um, approach to protein folding. The other way to do protein folding is just to say, well, we've got a big database of proteins that have been folded that where we know how the thing is folded. Um, let's just use that database as training data and use that to learn how we think proteins will fold using something like machine learning. And there's been sort of a, there's every year there's a competition um, for who can do the best protein folding. And I think actually is a former uh, employee of ours actually who, um, uh, um, is I think, I, I think he won the competition this last year, but he's been working on the kind of the machine learning direction. And I think he finally has a scheme that uses machine learning and that wins the competition. But there's been this sort of neck and neck, you know, is it first principles, is it machine learning that lets you best predict how proteins will fold? Um, this question about protein folding, one of the questions is why is it a hard problem? Um, and uh, that is related to, uh, uh, questions about when, when there are, okay, so there are a class of problems about that come up with computers uh, with, with defining problems where um, if you could guess the answer, you can check it's right pretty easily, but it can be really hard to guess the answer. And the many, many different tries you have to make, and there's nothing that really guides you into which guess to try to make. Factoring numbers is, is one that's probably like that. And protein folding has, has certain attributes that are like that, where if you can kind of guess the right arrangement to put the protein into, then, um, then you can verify that it has the lowest energy. But there are exponentially many. There are a huge number of different possible configurations that the protein can go into. And to, in principle, to find which one has the lowest energy, which one is the, is, 
the one that the protein will tend to go into. By the way, just to make it even more complicated, the protein doesn't necessarily go into the lowest energy state because it matters what the sequence of foldings is. And, and at each step, it's going to go in nature into the thing that has certain energy minimization features, but it's not guaranteed that it finds the globally minimum energy. Um, what really matters is what, what um, configuration it goes into in nature, because that's what determines the activity of the protein um, in, in a natural uh, system, in a biological system. Um, so it's a tricky thing. Um, and uh, there are, um, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated and it's not, um, there's still no really good solution. People have been working on this problem for at least 40 years now um, and uh, still difficult. It turns out there's some things that are easier like RNA, for example, uh, th that's actually pretty easy to, to calculate the folding patterns for. Proteins are just a really nasty case. All right, um, one last question here I will try and address, though it's a kind of complicated one. It's from adenylyl cyclase, interesting name. Question is, is there a relation between the classification of finite simple groups and your physics theory? Well, the first answer is we don't know, but yet. Um, but just, I'll just try and explain a little bit about what the classification of finite simple groups is all about. See if I can do this. Okay, so if you take an object, where have I got an object? Let's see, what object do I have here? Oh, here's a nice cubicle object. Okay, so there's a cube. Um, okay, so if I have this cubicle object, there are certain transformations I can make. Unfortunately, this isn't exactly a cube. Imagine this is exactly a cube. There's certain transformations that I can make on this object, I can turn it this way, I can rotate it this way, I can reflect it this way, and so on. There are certain transformations I can make on this object, which will leave the object unchanged. You know, or leave, assuming this was a featureless cube, it didn't have anything in it, didn't have anything written on it, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the cube in that orientation and the cube in that orientation, and so on. It would be something where those are symmetries of the cube. We're saying that, that there are a certain number of possible uh, transformations we can make, which will lead us to an indistinguishable cube, okay? Now, some of those transformations, um, we know certain properties of those transformations. Like if we have a transformation, let's say we just were looking at a, uh, well, even if we're looking at a square, we can do this. We can, we can take a transformation that rotates by 90 degrees. The, the, that transformation, if we apply it four times, we know we'll get back to exactly the, 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 the same thing we started from. Um, but these, um, uh, and so we can ask about what are the different possible groups of transformations that have this, have certain features like, um, well, they have to have, they have to obey certain properties. For example, every transformation, there has to be an inverse transformation. There has to be a transformation that does nothing. There has to be a property of associativity of transformations, which means if we do two transformations and then we do a third one, it's the same as doing one transformation and then doing two more. So with those properties, and, and those are true of, of transformations that we make on kind of regular objects. And that collection of transformations is called a mathematical group. Um, and the question then is, uh, if we just say, well, we've got the possible transformations of a cube, we've got the possible transformations of a square, we've got the possible transformations of an icosahedron, um, what possible sets of transformations are there 
that we can set up that have the properties that I described for a group, associativity, inverses, and uh, existence of identity. So uh, that question was, um, uh, there are an infinite number of possible collections of such transformations, but they fall into certain definite families. And there was a big project in the 1970s and 1980s, particularly to try and classify exactly what buckets of transformations that make groups there could be. And um, there, as I say, there's some infinite families, like you can have the group of any polygon, you can have a polygon with any number of sides. The group of the 117-sided polygon is different from the group of the 118-sided polygon. You do that for any, any size of polygon. It's a cyclic group of order N. Um, and uh, actually it's not just the cyclic group. There's a little bit more to it than just the cyclic group because of reflections. But um, anyway, the, the um, uh, uh, so in any case, you can, you can classify these different possible transformations that you can make. Well, um, so there's a big project to try and find what are all the families of different transformations. Some of them are very straightforward families like they're associated with polygons of different number of sizes, but there's some very exotic ones. And there's a particularly exotic one. There's a sequence of really exotic ones. And that is a finite sequence. It ends in this thing called the monster group, which is this group of transformations that has a huge number of elements. I forget how many it's in the trillions at least, maybe more than that, or maybe trillion trillions, I'm not sure, of possible transformations um, that are not transformations of anything that we are familiar with, like cubes and things like that. It's transformations of some giant mathematical object um, but that set of transformations, it has a certain degree of elegance because it is the exceptional, the only, the last, the biggest sort of uh, exotic, special, uh, finite group. Um, and uh, so that, and that group has many interesting properties and many things that are important in mathematics turn out to be subcases of that group. And so it is possible that in our theories of physics that um, in particular the, the um, uh, but there may be some things which are effectively coming out from something like the monster group, this, this biggest group. It's a little bit tricky because there are some, there are not just finite groups, there are also infinite groups which have an infinite number of transformations in them. And there are also things called Lie groups, L-I-E groups, um, that uh, named after a chap called Sophus Lee, who was Norwegian. Um, the uh, uh, Lie groups, are groups that have a continuous set of possible transformations. They're kind of the analog of calculus for groups um, where one has not just a discrete set, oh, we can rotate the, the, the square by, by 90 degrees, but you can rotate the, the object like a circle by any angle, however small that angle is. Uh, the, the symmetry group of the circle is a Lie group, a continuous group, it's called U1, um, the, uh, uh, the group of the circle, and that, um, and that's, a, that's another kind of group. And, and in, in trying to make contact with physics, most likely what's going to be relevant is Lie groups. And in fact, in our, in our models of physics, uh, which are discrete models of physics, which have only just this sort of, uh, this, this, this Lie group arises as a continuous, as a limit of, of a very large sized um, object. Um, and, and how that limit works is um, uh, you're sort of taking the limit of you have if, if you have enough it's like the limit of if you have enough molecules in your water the water will seem continuous if you have enough sides in your polygon the polygon will seem like a continuous circle 
and, and, and that's the way in which we get these kind of Lie group type things. But it's conceivable that in the way from our, from our discrete system through to something like the Lie groups that correspond to the so-called gauge groups that are fundamental to particle physics, um, that, uh, um, uh, that, that, we will, um, that we'll end up going through this monster group. All right, I think I should wrap up there. Uh, thank you very much for lots of interesting questions. I'm sorry I didn't get to everybody's question um, uh, today. Uh, please um, uh, drop in again next week and I will try and get to uh, some more of these questions. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.